Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And Ian. My particular friend, Mr. Bradley there. Yes. And we are <laughs> rereading the books of Patrick O'Brien, the Stephen Matron and Jack Aubrey series. We're uh, kind of getting cranked up with Treason's Harbor. We're in chapter four today. But Ian, remind us what was happening last week and what we might be looking forward to this week. Well, Mike, last week, the espionage plot was thickening. Laura Fielding had put Jack and his ham-fisted amorous approaches in place, but nicely. Stephen, meanwhile, had taken delivery of his diving bell, the bell of the world, and Professor Graham had been planning his farewell party. Stephen had found his way to being apparently seduced, or almost seduced, by Mrs Fielding, but along the way, discovering that what she really wanted from this apparent seduction was to get some kind of some kind of spy activity going. Stephen was prepared to use Mrs. Fielding in return to mystify the French. And we're looking forward now to Stephen feeding misinformation back into the French network the way that he did with Louisa Wogan. Right. This week, Mike, we've got the Commander-in-Chief's meeting. We've been talking about it for three chapters now. It's going to happen. The meeting with uh, Sir Francis Ives, the Commander-in-Chief. Um, Jack's going to get a plum mission far to the east. He's going to have an unexpected guest to go with him. Stephen's going to take a fall. And we meet a new secondary character, a dragoman. And along the way, there's going to be dinner and poetry and sea songs. Excellent. Well, we're hearing so much about shanties. I'm going to be looking forward to these sea songs here. It's going to be great. As, as you said, Ian, that, you know, Jack's just such a good guy that, you know, even though he was pretty upset about what appeared to be uh, Stephen's dalliance with Laura Fielding after she had put him off just that very morning, um, by morning, Jack had pretty much forgiven him. And he hears this hysterical hotel maid worried that there's been another suicide, she says. We haven't heard about this before <laughs> because she can't rouse Stephen. And there's been a message from the commander in chief summoning him to a meeting. Uh, and so Jack, you know, he gets the pass key from the maid. He goes in and he sounds like he's kind of waking up the lower deck, trying to get Stephen out of bed, finally just shaking him. Stephen, as we'll recall, had been up all night with Mrs. Fielding had taken a bunch of sleeping pills and and sadly was in the midst of a very vivid dream featuring Mrs. Fielding, as Stephen says, with a flame of equal warmth to his own. And he's not really happy about being <laughs> pulled out of his dream. Well, Bondin and Killick have arrived to see what's the matter. And Jack tells him that Stephen has to be at the palace in seven minutes, washed, shaved, and in his number one uniform. Boy, you know, in days when I'm running late, I sure would love to have Bondin and Killick to make something like this happen. Oh, wouldn't you just? <laughs> so guess what? Just like in so many other urgent naval meetings, Stephen is just in the nick of time, put into good seagoing shape and presented in this meeting aboard the Commander-in-Chief. He's sitting next to Graham, and Professor Graham complains that his dinner is ruined, this farewell dinner that he was planning, and in the last chapter had been getting Stephen's advice about. The dinner is ruined because he's being shipped out on the Sylph today instead of the dromedary on Thursday, and we may find out in a few moments what's going on with the dromedary. Graham is very, very uh, comfortable blaming it all on Figgins Pocock, 
the guy who we call a long-eared Luby, the Oriental advisor to Admiral Ives. And this meeting is starting to gather, and Stephen's looking around the table, surveying the attendees. We get the long-eared Luby himself, Mr. Pocock. We have Mr. Yarrow, um, the Admiral's surprisingly young secretary, and the Commander-in-Chief himself, Sir Francis Ives. And Mike, we're getting a consistent picture that we're allowed to like admirals now, you know, with the exception of Hart. We've had a few admirals who are okay. And Sir Francis Ives is described as having an immense air of energy and natural authority. Ives, it says here, had not had a seagoing command for some years, but intended to run the Mediterranean in a way that would earn him a peerage so he could overhaul his two brothers who are both lords. And Mike, that reminds me of Admiral Bertie way back in the Mauritius command, who really wanted some ermine, really wanted a peerage. Right. So Ives and Ray, unlike Admiral Hart, sit through all of these speeches without displaying any emotion and without giving anything away of their position or their interests. And as Graham had predicted, a great many words were uttered and very little was said. Yeah, we remember that back (laughs) when Stephen was sick and everybody was visiting him. You had a great commentary about this thing of many words uttered and very little being said. Well, Stephen is one of those ones who is not saying anything. He's he's staying quiet, and neither he or Graham are called upon the entire meeting. And and Stephen's just he's not surprised that he's not called upon in that meeting, but he's a little surprised that Ray, who had specifically invited him to discuss what Ray called the delicate matter, some intelligence matter, leaves the meeting with the Admiral without speaking to Stephen. He nods at him, but doesn't say a word. And Stephen's a little sorry not to hear more about this French intelligence agent, Lasseur, but um, Stephen had already decided that he would keep his own counsel about Laura Fielding and not involve Ray until he learned more about Ray's mind and his discretion. And Stephen quite looked forward to mystifying the French without getting anyone else involved and interfering with what O'Brien calls his practice hand in this infinitely delicate operation. So I love the way that O'Brien kind of writes this intelligence mission to sound just like surgery here. And and, and doing so, it kind of extols <laughs> Stephen's gifts in both areas. Yeah, and we're all sitting there breathing a sigh of relief that he's decided not to trust Ray yet because we as the reader know what Stephen's not privy to, which is that Ray is absolutely in the pay of the French. Right. So... We get another change of scene here. Jack is over at the dockyard and he's very glad that the very routinely corrupt shipwrights in the uh, dockyard, it says here that they see a world of difference between government money and private money and that a captain's personal outlay called for real value in return. And Jack, being now somewhat in funds, is able to direct money their way to get their attention onto the surprise, which he'd love to have back in seagoing shape, and away from the Worcester, which is just a a, a worthless hulk, really. So they could and would do a lot of work on the surprise, and they think that they can have her ready for sea in a week plus holidays. And we get this long list of all of the major and minor saints' days that have to be taken as holiday. Jack captures all of this for a report to the Admiral because he knows that this Admiral prizes brisk decisions. Sometimes, of course, Jack reflects, These brisk decisions, reports or statements did not quite wear so well as the more deliberate pondered versions. But as he said, 
If you stand considering which leg to put into your breeches first, you're likely to lose your tide, and in the meanwhile, your breeches bear. He maintained that speed was the essence of attack, and in his own actions, talking here about the Admiral, in his own actions, this had certainly proved true. Having taken care of a pecuniary corruption in the dockyard, Jack goes and takes care of physical and moral corruption of his crew. This crew, who he had tried to exercise back into some kind of shape a couple of chapters ago, rowing around to Gozo, uh, he goes to inspect them. They're about to head off in boats for target practice for Commander Pullings' weekly prize, which is an ice cake. And he sees the crew is even worse than before, even further diminished, even more squalid. It says here, being ruined by their liberty, but it would have been inhuman to deny them all liberty, and worse than inhuman, contrary to custom. <laughs> and Mike, yeah, you reminded me that this is like the line from Hermione Granger in Harry Potter that, you know, oh, they could have been killed or even worse, expelled. You know, being contrary to custom and contrary to honour is even worse than death. And we get this minor litany of all of the woes and the misdeeds of the crew. And some of them, like Davis, had been arrested for fighting ashore. Eleven were in the hospital with fever, pox, broken arms and fighting wounds. But none had deserted, despite many opportunities. So there's some loyalty there. Yeah. It's so bad, this whole moral sort of dis- dissolution and dissipation of the crew. It's so bad that Jack wishes he had a parson aboard. It says, someone to reclaim them. The fear of hellfire might do better than the cat. Anything to stop this wasting away. And Mike, it must be really bad for Jack to be wishing for a parson. Yeah, yeah. this is, he's certainly never been the guy that wanted to have a parson on board. That's for sure. Uh-oh. Oh, we, we get a little bit of a, an insight as to, to possibly why he's not the guy that always wants to have a parson aboard. When a midshipman arrives to summon Jack to the Admiral's flagship, Jack's glad he's already got on his best uniform. He wore that for his inspection. He asks Pullings to take his place, turns command over to Mowat, and heads straight for the Admiral's ship. But on the way out, he's wondering, wait a minute, the Admiral's having a meeting here on shore. How come I'm meeting him on his ship? Mm -hmm. And the midshipman that's been sent to fetch him tells him that the Admiral, who's a stickler for punctuality, thought that that he, the Admiral, would be back on board long before Aubrey was found and had time to, quote, put his breeches on. So the midshipman said and that he didn't even have to go to the lady's house since one of the bargemen had seen Jack head to the dockyard. So clearly Jack's reputation with Mrs. Fielding that's been you know, kind of bandied about town has preceded him even to the Admiral. Jack, however, waiting for the Admiral on the ship is delighted to have to wait through two bells. <laughs> and the Admiral coming on board surprisingly spots Jack and calls out, Aubrey, now that is what I call brisk. Good. Very good. I've not looked for you this hour and more. Come along with me. <laughs> Excellent. And Mike, there's, there's, there's a trend here. There's a trend, which is that breaches have become a bit of a fixation for Patrick O'Brien. Back in The Surgeon's Mate and Fortune of War, he mentioned breaches about 10 or 11 times per book. In the Ionian Mission and Treasons Harbour, breaches are mentioned twice as often. And I think we all know why. It's a, <laughs> it's a little reference to Jack's <laughs> misconduct and his proclivities and all the rest of it. 
So there you go. If you're thinking that this is a breaches heavy book, you're not wrong. We're getting a lot of mentions here. That's right. So we, we love that. We love breaches as, as kind of an element of strategic decision-making, breaches as infidelity, breaches as something that has your cold bum out there while you're waiting to get on with life. So <laughs> the Admiral you know, takes Jack aside. He tells him that the Worcester has been condemned. Now, you know, normally, I guess everybody would be looking for a little disappointment, but Jack is thinking of the surprise, which he's now getting along, and he remembers the, quote, firmly promised Blackwater, you know, this heavy frigate that he's hoping to take to the North American station. So he simply bows saying, yes, sir. And I think the Admiral's kind of impressed with that. He asks for a report on the surprise. Jack gives that to him but reports on how diminished his crew is. And the Admiral asks if he still has enough hands left to work a moderate ship. Admiral looks over Jack's list of the surprises compliment and says, well, yeah, these are all able hands. And he thinks that with this crew, he has a plum, which Jack dearly deserves for turning the French out of Marga. Mm. And Jack sits there wondering what plum could be left in the Mediterranean. Well, the answer is it's something for Jack to look forward to in chapter four of an 11 chapter book. (laughs) And we all know what happens to the things that Jack is anticipating with relish when he's relishing them this early in the book, right? (laughs) Sorry, spoilers. Right. (laughs) Let's talk about what this plum might be because this is the mission that uh, Lord Lowestoff had been tapped up for, but the Admiral's about to hand it on to Aubrey. The Admiral shows Jack the island of Mubara in the Red Sea. It's ruled by a local personality called Talah, who's become even more important since Mehmet Ali, who's an Albanian, had hatched his plan to conquer Arabia all the way down to the Persian Gulf, declare himself independent, and join with the French in bundling us out of India. And Mike, so far in... This book and the previous book, we've heard a lot about the Ottoman Empire and the North African coast and the Ionian coast. But now we're looking east. We're looking at the routes out to the East Indies. So the French want Mubara in the Red Sea as a base for their frigates and also as a way to keep an eye on Mehmet Ali. Since Mubara has relatives up and down the coast he can bring, the French are providing gunners and engineers to fortify his harbour. And as much as 5,000 purses of silver sent from Mauritius just before the island was taken. And we do know who took it. It was our hero, Jack Aubrey, Only, even though the Admiral took the credit. Exactly. Talal's galley is going to return from Kasawa with the silver once the month of Ramadan is over. And the Admiral explains, with a nice bit of exposition for the rest of us as well, if we want a, a reminder, Ramadan, he says, is a kind of Lent, but far more thorough-paced. They're not allowed to eat or drink or have to do with women from sunrise to sunset, and it lasts from one new moon to the next. And we learn, furthermore, that the galley can't return until Ramadan ends, since the rowers would have no water in blazing sun, rowing hundreds of miles up the Red Sea against prevailing winds, and that's not something they can ask a crew to do. And the Admiral doesn't like the galley's sailing qualities or their ability to swarm and board you, especially in a calm They pull 12 hours a day and snug down for the night so Jack can easily, they think, easily find and take them on the 15th day of the moon. And for that purpose, he's going to have the use of an 18-gun sloop 
provided by the East India Company with a small crew of Lascars, which are a generic term for Southeast Asian sailors, Turkish troops, and a new ruler from Mubara who will be provided by the Sultan. This small force, they think, arriving unexpectedly, can quietly depose Talal, and along the way, take care of the treasure, I guess. So, since Lowestoff is sick and can't go, Jack is the perfect man for the mission, says the Admiral. He's not slack in stays. He's, he's even fast putting his breeches on, as we've learned. He's liked by the Sultan. This Chalenk, the decoration that he got in the last book, will give him even more authority there, and he knows the Turks and the Albanians. He and his crew will go in the Dromedary transport that evening to the Nile Delta, go ashore in a small out-of-the-way place called Tina, so as not to offend the Egyptians, go overland to Suez with a Turkish escort, and the surfaces of somebody who's described to us right now as a most exceptional, learned, and able dragoman. And dragoman, we think, means an interpreter, a guide to in, in, in the local languages of Arabic and Turkish and Persian. This dragoman is an Armenian by the name of Hyrabedian, particularly recommended by Mr. Ray. And we have the offer that Mr. Pocock can brief Jack, and if he chooses Stephen as well, on the political situation after dinner. And looking at Jack for a moment, the Admiral says, it was strongly urged that you should take another surgeon, that Maturin should be left here for consultation of some kind or another. But on mature consideration, I overruled that. In an enterprise of this kind, you want all the political intelligence you can get. And no doubt, Mr. Ray's high opinion of Harabedian is quite justified. It, but it must not be forgotten that the poor fellow is only a foreigner, after all. Huh. So, Mike, we would have thought, perhaps a chapter or two ago, that Hart's intention was to get Stephen out on this Red Sea mission with the idea of, in, in quotes, killing two birds with one stone. But that's not the plan now. No, it's really interesting. You know, you kind of wonder what's going on. Is is the Admiral playing a game? Was this Ray? Is Harbedian a, a red herring? Or maybe, you know, you, you had suggested, and I think this might be right on the mark, that Ray has perhaps changed his mind now that he thinks that Laura Fielding is going to be pulling the secrets out of Matron and maybe wants to, you know, wanted to keep Stephen on shore to get at his secrets. But the Admiral, knowing Aubrey and Matron's success together in the past, has overruled him as sending Matron along with him. Yeah. Mm. Well, the Admiral and Jack sit and have a drink together. They're kind of waiting for, for dinner, their dinner guests to arrive. You know, there's been a lot of talk on the Facebook Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society about, you know, our favorite drink. So O'Brien does note here it's pale ale for the Admiral, Plymouth gin for Jack, at least at this moment. And Jack is thinking through the mission, as we so often have seen him do. He knows that success depends completely on the wind, consistent good luck in all stages, and surprise. He knows he's going to have to deal with the Turks. He's going to have to deal with an unknown ship. And he is thinking, as he always is, that there is not a moment to lose. So he asked the Admiral if he can send word to his crew, which is currently gathered together at a small arms practice, this contest of pullings. Uh, so he wants to have them ready to go at a moment's notice. And the admiral is surprised that they're all drilling with small arms, makes him you know, sound a little bit like soldiers who the admiral's not very fond of. But 
not like sailors who the admiral would expect to be kind of spread out all over the island in dissolute activity. And Jack is kind of proud to tell him that he believes that his crew have the finest musketry on the station. And we kind of wonder whether perhaps that might come in handy later in the story. And Mike, I love the description of some of the social aspects of this dinner. And we've learned to expect in O'Brien's books that dinner is where we get a lot of the sense of how the community is moving along and how the ship's companies and the different people attached to them are shaking down as a, as a family. And Jack is having dinner with the Admiral and his guests, including the Admiral's great-nephew, George Harvey. This is the midshipman who'd come to find Jack and had very disingenuously said that he had, hadn't found him at the lady's house. Right. And O'Brien is taking great delight in describing to us the discomfort that Jack feels in being praised by the Admiral. And the Admiral is initially is doing this perhaps in order to highlight a role model for uh, for Harvey, the young midshipman, and starts out by saying that this midshipman could do worse than choose somebody like Jack as a role model and goes on in this really quite embarrassing way to praise Jack's table manners, how he how he bows properly when he takes a glass of wine with someone, how he wears his hat, how he doesn't write RN after his name, which is a modern affectation. And O'Brien writes that these remarks were quite enough to cause Jack's neighbours, post-captains of about his own seniority, a good deal of quiet pleasure. And it's it's an odd thing to write, but Mike, I think what's going on here is that Jack's embarrassed. It's a bit like being a teenager at dinner with a couple of teenage friends and one of your parents who's saying, you know, what a, what a good kid you are working at school and how you can dance the ballet beautifully. He's like, oh no, don't talk to me like that in front of my mates. It's really embarrassing. And even the midshipman doesn't really seem to appear to know what to do. So a little bit of family chat. And just like every family chat, somebody ends up feeling a little bit embarrassed and a little bit uneasy. And on this occasion, it's Jack for all of his praise that he's getting from the Admiral. Meanwhile, though, we get a conversation between Jack and Stephen and Mr. Pocock. Yeah, Jack's really happy to get out of this dinner. And he joined Stephen and Mr. Pocock already deep in the torturous politics at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Now, Pocock is assuring them both that their journey overland is going to be just fine. He says that Mehmet Ali is is trying to win Ashman Pasha's confidence, so he doesn't think he's going to interfere with them. And however, he warns them they have to stay out of Ibrahim's way. We don't know who that is, and, and avoid any roving Bedouins. You know, he tells them, probably you're, you're a, a big group of people. You're going to have a lot of arms flashing. You'll probably be okay. And he goes on to explain kind of the history of the territory and the fall of many of these bays, the rise of this Mahabet Ali, and unfortunately, the English backing for Ali, who now seems to be turning on them, you know, the former backing. But the admiral interrupts this long discourse by coming in with Aubrey's order. He's telling them that under Mowat's direction, the surprises crew has the dromedary ready to leave much earlier than expected. So the Admiral suggests that if Jack has any quote-unquote tender farewells to make on shore, he better make them now. So another allusion to uh, what the Admiral thinks is Jack's ongoing affair with Laura Fielding. 
Thank you, sir, said Jack, but I believe I shall leave my farewells for my return and pull across directly. There is not a moment to lose. Well, you know, the Admiral's even more glowing now about Jack. Quite right, Aubrey, quite right, said the Admiral. And what is more, speed is the essence of attack. Goodbye to you then, and I hope to see you again within a month or so, trailing clouds of glory and perhaps something more substantial too. Doctor? You're a humble servant. <laughs> Great. It's, it's almost like it's the end of an act in a play, isn't it? Okay, okay, off we go. Right, let's go. You know, not a moment to lose. And we go straight to the characters speeding across the Grand Harbour in a boat. And we get a bit of a left turn in the story here because Stephen just happens to mention that he's been visiting with the Reverend Mr. Martin and asks if Jack remembers him. The one-eyed parson, um, that is to say, uh, the clergyman who preached so well on the subject of quails in the Worcester. Of course I do. A chaplain any first rate would be proud of, and a great naturalist too, as I recall. And Jack does a very nice job for us doing a little plot catch-up and reminds us of where we've heard of Martin before. And we hear that Martin had tried diving with sponge fishes in the Greek islands, but could only stay down 43 seconds. So he's got a lot of interest in trying out Stephen's bell. And Stevens invited him as a social call around to the dromedary to see the bell. And Jack was surprised that they, to hear that this bell, about which they had clashed already, surprised to hear that it was coming along. And he assured Stephen that there's going to be no leisure time to use it on the mission. And we get this very nice kind of delicate conversational back and forth now between Stephen and Martin and Jack aboard the deck of the dromedary. Stephen looks for Martin around the bell. Mr. Callamy had found Stephen, that's the young midshipman, and told him that he'd nabbed him a small cabin and placed Stephen's dunnage and Mr. Martin there. And we might remember here that Callamy himself had become very fond of Stephen after he'd treated him for months. Stephen and Martin sat below in Stephen's cabin, engrossed in all of Stephen's specimens and in his copy of Dr. Halley's article about the diving bell, as the dromedary cast off. And we hear that Captain Pullings, standing desolate on the quay, waved goodbye to those few friends who were not too busy to notice him. And they talk about sponges and coral and the Red Sea and how Martin says, seeing a coral reef might be his greatest pleasure this side of paradise. And Stephen starts to play a little bit of kind of a sarcastic game with Martin, saying that the idea of leisure, meaning leisure to go and gather natural specimens, leisure is a word that offends the navel ear. There is a restless itch to be busy, a tedious, obsessive hurry. Waste not a minute, they cry, as though the only right employment for time were rushing forwards no matter where, so it be farther on. Very true, notices Martin. There's also a passionate and perhaps even a superstitious preoccupation with cleanliness. The very first thing I heard on setting aboard was the cry, sweepers! And I suppose I must have heard it 20 times a day, every day since then, although with the perpetual swabbing and scrubbing, there's really nothing for a single broom to do, let alone a dozen. And they've got themselves into this nice little, you know, little gang of two together, and they're chatting about how sailors are a bit of a peculiar crew, and they're leafing through the specimens and talking about the Red Sea and coral. 
but I think time is passing by, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, we, we had this one little ominous moment there where Stephen realizes that even Martin knows they're going to the Red Sea, all this you know secret mission stuff. But we have another minor ominous moment because Martin realizes that the light's getting dim and, and he knows that the dromedary is supposed to be sailing that evening. So he's thinking, you know, I, I better head for sure here uh, before you guys head out and climbing up. Stephen realizes that the ship is leaning far more than it really should be doing in port. And then he hears this cry of cast loose your guns. <laughs> and I think both of them realize this does not bode well. And coming up, they see as they poke their head out that they're surrounded by ocean. And, you know, Jack has the crew practicing the great guns in a dumb show. So they're not firing, but they're running them in and out. He's not at all pleased with the results of that exercise, but he is pleased to see Mr. Martin, who acknowledges that he has clearly not left the ship in time. And Jack invites him to dinner and invites them, if he'd like, to accompany them on their cruise, saying that they're headed for the pollution mouth of the Nile. So, you know, Stephen, who who was kind of neither confirming or denying the Red Sea, Jack just says, yep, yep, that's where we're off to. That's where we're going. And at dinner, Martin accepts this offer, explaining that his captain had given him a month off and the option to extend the holiday for several months if he'd like to. And I think Jack is smiling (laughs) inwardly, knowing that the captain of this ship that Martin's on had only accepted a parson kind of under duress from the former commander-in-chief, and that that captain kind of likes to bring along female companion usually, but fails that he could not, as O'Brien writes, ship a miss and a parson at the same time. So he's sure that captain will be relieved to have Martin off his hands for a little while. You know, Martin offers to pay for his own vittles. He he will act as Dr. Matron's assistant. And and Jack tries to warn him, though, that, that you know, this is going to be a tough mission. They're going to be marching, as Jack says, across a desert filled with serpents of various malignity, <laughs> as the doctor puts it. And Stephen is kind of, you know, kind of hears this and and wants to sort of write himself. And he very sleepily says, I I was only quoting Goldsmith. But O'Brien tells us that his lack of sleep from the prior night and then, you know, being roused so unceremoniously that morning, you know, is really kind of overpowering him. And he starts murmuring, you know, super coma, lethargy, chorus. And, and he, he's kind of rattling <laughs> off in his sleep now these stages of unconsciousness, this kind of deep, unnatural state of complete unconsciousness, which sometimes leads to death. Um, thank you, by the way, for the gun room's lexicon helping us make out what that was. But I'm thinking to myself, you know, this can't be a great thing. <laughs> this is not a good omen, I don't think. No, it's not. And Stephen's carrying a couple of different burdens, I think, from his encounter with Mrs. Fielding and him setting himself up to uh, uh, apparently seduce her, uh, but then uh, give and receive false information. And this is the first of the burdens. He's exhausted from having spent long nights transcribing documents and pretending to make love to her. We might hear more about where those burdens take him later on in the chapter. But meanwhile... Stephen and Martin, having already expressed their sort of gleeful disdain for certain things to do with the Navy, discover that Jack can do the same back at them. 
Jack carries on telling Martin about this mission, which is going to be hot and dangerous. And as he sees this glow of delight over Martin's face, he adds, I must tell you that the service is not designed for those that wish to gather beetles and henbane on some far coral strand and that grow snappish and petulant when desired to mind their duty. Talking louder, it says, and looking at Stephen for a response. I'm like, this is exactly how Jack had roasted Babington in the company of Mowat for uh, for Babington's choice of uh, company with a woman from Lesbos. <laughs> so this is this is Jack's standard bit of repartee, I think, to 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 throw shade at one person in conversation with a second person. Otherwise, he says he'd be happy to have Doctor Martin, who might help with a chorus with some of his former Worcester pupils from the Oratorio, which they did in the previous book. Martin's very happy with those terms. He agrees to the terms, and Jack says he was wishing for a parson earlier that day. And he refrains from asking for a thundering hellfire sermon to terrify the crew into good behaviour, suggesting that it would be good to rig church and hear some suitable words against vice and dissipation. Ah, So, Mike, if we're going to think about vice and dissipation, I think it's time for a bit of a bit of a break. What do you say? Well, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of Lent. It's not Ramadan, but certainly, you know, one of our practices could be meditating on vice and dissipation during the break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hold. Well, welcome back. As we rejoin our hero, uh, or our heroes, you know, Moet has uh, come to ask to see Jack, uh, according to Killick, uh, to ask about where to stow the foreign gent. And Jack invites Moet to come in and have a glass of port with them. And Jack kind of is considering Moet's question. And he says, you know, were, were drogomans or drogomen mess in general? I do not know. But the commander-in-chief spoke of this one as uncommon clever, particularly recommended by Mr. Secretary Ray. So I think he must eat in the gun room. And Jack is hoping that given their good luck with perhaps what he calls Nelson's wind, the one that assisted, the one that assisted Nelson and Jack as part of that convoy when they chased the French in 98, it should hopefully be only for a week. And then Jack starts to tell the tale of this search and battle as they were looking for the French. Uh, And he's going on and on. The ship heaves and Stephen, who we heard earlier, was kind of, you know, really so emotionally drained and tired. Stephen pitches forward from his chair, O'Brien writes, striking his forehead on the edge of the table, splitting the skin a hand's breadth across a reasonably close imitation of Nelson's wound at the Nile and almost as bloody. Wow. So this is this is grim. Poor old Stephen. He's, he's exhausted and he's fallen over and he's split his head open. It's pretty clear that he's going to get his scalp stitched up, but how is he going to be about it and who's going to do the stitching? Because Stephen's got some form with self-surgery. So let's take a look at it. First of all, we get classic Stephen. He's his typical bad patient self. One would think, he says, one would think you'd never seen blood before, which is absurd in a band of hired assassins. 
He says to Killick, Moom, Capon, Malt Horse, Lobcock, hold the basin straight. And these are all variations, Mike, on a on the on words for a blockhead or a stupid or slow blundering person. He asks Moat to fetch the curved needle and gut from his medicine chest, and he asks Martin to sew him up. And Jack's pretty worried about this, and he's feeling pretty skittish. Martin remarks, as a practiced taxidermist, <laughs> that the birds he stuffs and sews have much thinner skin, but he's proud of the seam that he sews in Maturin's face. Moat tries to help Stephen out, but he's having none of it. He says, I'm neither drunk nor decrepit, and says good night. And Mike, we get the second of Stephen's burdens here. He wakes in the morning just as someone outside his bed screams something about a cuckold's neck. And that starts him thinking about cuckolds, about people who are the, uh, the victims, if you like, of adultery. And the letter that he had received that said Diana, his wife, was deceiving him with a gentleman from the Swedish embassy and why he didn't believe that because Diana might well do anything that she wanted to do, but he didn't think that she would have written him such an affectionate note at a time when she was busy adorning his forehead with horns and would probably not disgrace him without any provocation. And she's got no cause to feel provoked by Stephen's conduct, at least not so far. He thought about Sophie, her cousin, Jack's wife, who is so different from Diana. And while she, Diana, didn't so much care what people thought, it says in the text that she cared no more from Mrs. Grundy, who is a personification of the tyranny of conventional propriety, no one but a maniac would have a right to tell Jack that he was a cuckold, although on a basis of reciprocity, he deserves a whole hatful of antlers. And he was pondering why, when Jack stuck his head in, I was just thinking of you, he says to Jack. Pray, what is a cuckold's neck by sea? And Jack describes the knot, which is a simple loop of rope, and asks how Stephen was doing, suggesting some weak tea and a lightly boiled egg. And Stephen roared back that he'd like a large pot of strong coffee and kippered herrings. And Jack asked, why the devil was he asking about cuckolds? Mike, I think this effort to turn, or rather to double, Mrs. Fielding as an agent has really got to Stephen. He's tired and he's reflecting on faith and adultery. And Stephen said he'd been asking Jack as a naval authority. And he added, if any man so far forgot himself as to make a licentious suggestion to Sophie, she would not understand him for a week. And then she would instantly lay him dead with your double-barreled fowling piece. Right. I think you're right, Ian, that this uh, this whole thing of, of Stephen's reflections and, you know, gonna, what should he be doing with Laura Fielding? What might Diana be doing at home? You know, comparing that to what Jack is doing, could yeah. be doing, wants to do, what he thinks Sophie would be doing. You know, clearly eating at Stephen a little bit here. Now, Jack, of course, not as quite a deep a thinker as Stephen, moves quickly on, loves this idea of Sophie you know, shooting anybody that would mess with her, and goes on to tell Stephen that, you know, in addition to being a naval authority, he might well consider him a naval diplomat as well. And he tells Stephen how the night before he had politely convinced the captain, Mr. Allen, of this merchant vessel to accept a larger crew made up of some of the surprises and thereby to increase sail. You know, Jack had told him that he would indemnify the owners of the vessel if anything carried away. So he's quite pleased that they're now making you know much better speed. And on deck, 
Jack assembles the crew, and he's now conducting an on-end close inspection. He's having everybody stand out and dump their, you know, the contents of their sea bags out to sort of take inventory. And, you know, we kind of had a hint of this back on shore in the inspection that, you know, all these people had been selling their clothes in order to fund their dissolute living on shore. Now, gratefully, everybody's taken good care of their small arms, but most of them are missing, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of their clothes. And he points out that the men who fall short of maintaining what's required by, as, as O'Brien says, their own vicious waste and negligence or vile debauchery deserve to be on the defaulters list and whipped. But he settles for cutting Calamy's grog, probably not a big <laughs> loss to Calamy, when a man in his division has only one shoe left. So Jack, always a little kind in his heart. And then Jack then provides slops for the entire crew here. The crew, I think, uh, glad to have them, spends the entire afternoon saying, you know, we can't just wear regulation slops. So they're recutting them, they're re-sewing them. And I think Jack's glad to see that the men are now returning to naval order. He's got the ship moving faster. He's got a favorable win. He's got his crew back to doing what he wants. And, you know, the next day, the crew, knowing that they're going to rig church on Sunday, is thinking to themselves, you know, they don't want to be shown up by the dromedaries coming well-dressed to church. And so they're working even harder, sewing ribbons into their seams. And they also are feeling a little sorry for Stephen because they assume, you know, just like they would be, that he he must have uh, cut his head open by falling down dead drunk. So to make him feel a little bit better, they spend some time polishing his diving bell. (laughs) Which is a very nice way for the crew to pay a compliment to Stephen, isn't it? (laughs) Now, we know that it wouldn't be a Patrick O'Brien cruise without a dinner among the ship's company. Um, so Stephen comes into this dinner late after he's been tending to the sick bay. He joins the dromedary's master and his mate, the surprises officers and some other members of the ship's company, including Mr. Martin and including the dragoman, Mr. Harabedian, who is berthing in the gun room, as we've now decided. Martin and Harabedian are talking away because they're not bound by naval convention. And therefore, even when they're sober, they're quite happy to chat away to each other. The rest of the naval crew are weighed down by the fact that there was an argument earlier on between Mowat and Rowan, who are our two competitive poets, who've already had a couple of, you know, a couple of poem offs, if that's the right phrase. They'd been arguing about the definition of a dromedary, and Rowan called upon Stephen as a natural philosopher to settle the argument saying that the dromedary is a hairy animal with two bunches that move slow, hence is called the ship of the desert. And Mowat had jumped in by asserting that the dromedary has only one bunch and moves fast. Stephen sees that Martin's not going to say anything and replies, I should not like to commit myself, but I believe the word is used somewhat loosely according to the taste and fancy of the speaker, much as sailors say sloop for a vessel with one mast or two or even three. You are to consider that as there are swift sailing sloops and slow, there may be brisk and sluggish dromedaries. Yet I am inclined to suppose, if only from the example of this excellent ship of Captain Allen's, that the ideal dromedary is a creature that moves fast, giving one a smooth and agreeable ride, however many bunches it may have. That's a brilliant diplomatic turnaround, very uncharacteristic of Stephen, 
to be so emollient of the whole company there. Uh, so absolutely true. I thought this is well done. This kind of reminds us of Jack and his Solomon <laughs> mode in, in in an earlier book. Yeah. <laughs> the person wanted to keep this, this dromedary thing going, even after Stephen had neatly tied a bow on it and said, well, some say dromedary. And Jack cut the topic off short because I think Jack sees Stephen's skillful diplomacy for what it is. And so they're going on with these stories. And at one point, Moet asked Mr. Harabedian if if it's true that he'd met Lord Byron. And they all start to exchange stories. But Stephen is sitting there kind of carefully watching this drogoman and, and kind of assessing him. He's thinking that he's very intelligent. And he uh, O'Brien writes how he had gained the good opinion of the gunroom, not indeed by talking much, although his English was nearly perfect, but rather by reason of his jolly twinkling eye, his most infectious high-pitched laugh, his habit of listening attentively, and his admiration for the Royal Navy. Now, Mr. Adams leans over and asks Stephen who Byron is, and, and hearing that Byron was a poet, he goes on about how much he loves poetry. And so after they drink to the king and the dromedary and the surprises and to wives and to sweethearts, one of my favorite yeah. toasts, Jack told Alan that if he likes poetry, he's come to the right shop. And since Moet had been called away, Jack asked Rowan to recite one of his poems. And as we had in the, you know, in the, in the last book in the poetry competition, Rowan does not change his conversational tone. He kind of launches straight into what, you know, what I kind of read is a pretty pedestrian poem about a battle on the fetus. And, and he just kind of goes on through it here. Uh, Moet returns during the last lines of this poem. And, and O'Brien says he has a look of fairly well-disguised disappointment. Jack picks up on this and then introduces Moet to Mr. Allen as their other appreciated poet on board, the one in the modern taste, and says, you know, if the modern taste appeals to Mr. Allen, he he would have Moet recite a thing. And, and you know, yeah. Allen says, you know, he would like that of all things. So Moet recites his poem about a dying dolphin at uh, at Jack's request. Now, this is really well-written. It's nicely recited, but it's sadly kind of about this ship's crew that, you know, kind of slows down a little bit. A group of dolphins come behind the ship and, and the crew start to kill them. Mm-hmm. And as he's reciting this, Stephen's mind wanders back to Laura Fielding and what Stephen calls his perhaps untimely, unnecessary, foolish, unprofitable sanctimonious chastity. Wow. So Stephen, who's had this um, this kind of chilling connection in this poem, he's had this amorous dream about Laura Fielding. Yeah. He's been thinking about cuckolds and this letter about Diana. I think, you know, maybe he's kind of wondering if his kind of manipulating this situation may result in Laura Fielding's death when he could have gone along without taking her into confidence uh, and done it another way, kind of like he had done earlier with Louisa Wogan. I don't know. This is uh, boy, this is kind of a, a, a bit of an ominous moment here. 
It is. And I think, again, we're getting the signal that Stephen's not okay, or at least part of his conscience is not okay with where he's put himself in this potential relationship with uh, with Laura Fielding. And I don't think it's going to let him be. And, and I'm sure that heading into the desert <laughs> with the crew of the drama during the surprise is necessarily going to be the salve for his conscience that he might hope for. No. He's brought back from his reverie by the noise of the applause as Moet finishes. Above the general noise, it says, rose Mr. Allen's strong, seagoing voice, now free from the genteel restraint of some decanter's back. He said that although the dromedary could not return the compliment in kind, meaning poetry, having no gentleman of equal talent aboard, she could at least reply with a song, goodwill supplying what it might lack in harmony. He said to his mate, ladies of Spain, William, beat three times on the table, and together they sang. And Mike, this this is taking us dangerously close to the territory of shanty singing. Let's have a little bit of Ladies of Spain. So they've sung the chorus and the first verse. The captain and his mate sing the next verse. And then far below in the midshipman's berth, the excluded youngsters began the next verse and their pure voices sang. And to close the chapter, Stephen's most valuable recollection of this was Hyrebedian's delighted face, his twinkling eyes and his countertenor soaring above the thunder, declaring that he too, like a true British sailor, should roam over all the salt seas. And Mike, this is interesting. We've got the idea of singing a song being different if you're an insider than, than an outsider. And we've got this juxtaposition with being an adult versus being a child. And with Harabedian, is he a bit childlike? Is he an outsider? What role is he going to play? And it, th- this is reminding me, Mike, in the, uh, in the Master and Commander movie of the moment where Mr. Hollum sings in a beautiful countertenor the opening verse to Ladies of Spain, and it clearly marks him out as an outsider. We'd like to dig in more deeply into this idea of social singing aboard ships and sea shanties, because sea shanties have become a big thing online lately. And we're going to take a moment to listen in to an interview that we had with a new friend of the podcast, John Bromley, from the shanty band Kimber's Men. We're really happy to welcome to the show John Bromley. John sings bass with Kimber's Men. Kimber's Men are a long-established shanty band based in Yorkshire in the UK. Welcome, John. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. John, tell us a little bit about Kimber's Men and, and how they got started. How does a shanty band come in? Well, I've, I've been singing folk songs for since I was about 15. And in 2001, um, a guy that, was, that I vaguely knew called Joe Stead I decided he wanted to make a, an album called Valparaiso Around the Horn, hmm. which was a story of a, a voyage in the 1860s from Liverpool in England to Valparaiso in Chile and uh, going around Cape Horn and all the different songs that they would have sung going on that journey. Because he had, he had outward bound shanties and inward bound shanties. And he just wanted to do the outward bound shanties and explain what each shanty was for. Plus, he did some other some sea songs and some narrative with it. So, um, And he needed some people to sing on his chorus of his shanties. 
and he knew that he, he vaguely knew me and knew that I, I sang so I went and did this and, and then a, a few weeks later he said he, he rang me up and he said how do you fancy forming a shanty band and I said oh yeah that sounds interesting because I've always, I've always sung shanties as part of my repertoire but not exclusively and so um, he said there's myself and Neil Kimber uh, one of the other members and Roger Hepworth so that's what that's how we started we had some rehearsals and every, every time we rehearsed we, we all brought five pounds with us and put that into a kitty and eventually we had enough money to to start recording a, an album we'd, we'd you know we recorded every week without fail and did a few performances in amongst with the idea that we could make an album and record it and sell it when we did get any gigs so that's how we started really roger hepworth died about four years into the band's formation so we went out as a threesome for for a while and then we got another two people in the band one of which was a a, a bagpipe player um and then he <laughs> left and then joe died uh and we left we're left with four of us anyway there's four of us now in the band uh, and we've got a range of instruments like uh, guitar, harmonium, one of those Indian harmoniums where you oh, wow. operate the bellows with one hand and the keyboard with the other hand. And I play whistle and bow on and various other things. But most of our stuff is a cappella. And so you sing bass, and, and I think of like bass parts in uh kind of choral music being just singing the kind of the the low end of the harmony yeah. is that how it works in a shanty band what yeah. kind of role does the bass have uh well I, I sing bass but i also sing lead as well uh in some songs um right. and then somebody else will take over the the bass line but i've got a particularly low bass so it's difficult for somebody to sing bass un- under my lead you can't you can't out bass a bass singer not really <laughs> John, can I play in a clip of Kimber's men singing God Moves on the Water, even though it's not a shanty? I think there's a really, really great bass yeah, cutting sure, through yeah. here at the bottom of this. Yeah. But when they struck that iceberg, well, I know their minds was John, as somebody interested in this, how far down does your range go? What's the bottom end of your um, range? About bottom A is, uh, is, is an audible bottom A, especially if I've been singing all weekend. You know, it's uh, bottom A. That's wow, that's pretty fruity. Excellent. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, Any special yeah. uh, special artificial measures that help you get the bottom end? <laughs> Just probably drink too much, too much Guinness. Nice. Well, you astonish me. <laughs> sort of well out to advertise on it. So. I, I think that's what I was always missing in my choir role. I could never get that low bass quite the way I wanted to. More Guinness, that was the answer. Yeah, exactly. Well, John, tell us a little bit about the history of shanties. You know, where do they come from? How are they used? Well, I've heard this quite recently, actually. But there were people who were working to song um, call and response um, way back when, you know, be- in Elizabethan times, and whilst whilst ever we've had some sort of navy, I suppose back in Saxon times when we when uh, King Alfred had a, a navy, and I'm I'm sure there would be songs uh, sung, but more call and response. Um, but the the sort of 
modern sea shanty, if you, call, you can call it modern, didn't start really until after the Napoleonic Wars. During the Napoleonic Wars, as you mm. and all your listeners will know, all, all boats carried carried guns, and because they carried guns, then um, they didn't have they wouldn't allow singing on board because people had to be ready listening uh, in case they had to yeah. land the cannons and what have you. Uh, and there were yeah. loads and loads of people on board on board all sailing ships because they had to have specialist crew for for manning the guns. So. Whereas you'd, you'd have lots of people to haul on ropes and operate capstans and one thing or another. After the Napoleonic Wars, they were vastly reduced with the, uh, the amount of people on the crew on board. And because they were vastly reduced, the same people, the, the people who were left had to do the same work that a lot more other people would have done in, in the past. Mm. And so um, uh, they had to devise a method of making the power that they got more effective and, and by doing call and response shanties then that helped to keep everybody in time so that there was a, a concerted effort on each pull, everybody pulling at exactly the same time. And so that's where they came from. And that's when the the heyday of the of the shanty was from about 1815 up to the turn of the century. But then you see steam engines came in during the, the American Civil War. I mean, uh, there was uh, the Alabama was a, yeah. had a steam steam power. Um, the, the end of the mm. the end of the nineteenth century. That's when they started to to fade, really. So it's quite a short period of time. And and during that time, then John, can you tell us a bit about how different shanties were used for different jobs right. around the around the ship. Well, uh, uh, on board ship, the first job is to set sail, so you've got control of the ship. So you might have a, yep. a, a halyard shanty to pull the smaller sails and halyards are it's a haul yard so the yard is the the stick that goes across the mast the lower sails have got the sail drops down from the yard whereas on the halyards the yard is pulled up the mast and the sail drops below it then and this is because ships need, need it to be stable in stormy weather and so the higher up the yards are the less stable the vessel is the hull yards need to move up and down so that it can in in bad weather you can lower the center of gravity of the mass so hull shanties were designed for that and then when you set off you've got to remove the anchor from the seabed so you start off with a, a quick shanty because there's there's a lot of slack. So you could walk around the capstan quite yeah. quickly. And there's a, a song called Valparaiso round the horn, Paddy lay back, and that's taking taking your slack. So it goes, it was a cold and dreary morning in December, December, and all of my money it was spent. Where it went to Lord, I can't remember, remember. So down to the shipping office I went. And paddy lay back, paddy lay back, take in your slack, take in the slack, take a turn around the captain, Eva Paul. About ship station, boys, be handy, be handy, we're bound for Valparaiso around the horn. So that's a quick one. Nice. And then you've, as you get closer to the anchor and it starts becoming harder work, so you want a slow shanty then. And so you'd have something like a ship when a sailing out over the bar, way down Rio. She pointed her nose to the southern star and we're bound for the Rio Grande. And away, boys, away, way down Rio. 
Sing fare thee well, me Liverpool girl, for we're bound for the Rio Grande. So that's the slower one. Mm. And then as you get right, oh, it's coming over the top of the anchor, you want a real slow one, so you'd have something like, uh, Shenandoah, so oh Shenandoah, I'm bound to leave ya away, rolling river. But in my dreams, I'm bound to hear ya away. I'm bound to go across the wide Missouri. So that's the slow one. And then hopefully the, the anchor releases from the seabed and you haul it up and uh, away you go. Mm, great stuff. So that's those are caps enchanted. Oh, it's fantastic. The, the Shenandoah is one of my favourites. But Shenandoah, <laughs> I think of as, as an American song, would people from navies all around the world have known each other's shanties? Was there sort of cross, what's the word, cross-fertilisation? Yeah, because people travelled all around the world like they do now on, on trading vessels. And you have crew from all over the, all over the world. Lots of um, African-American people, people from Polynesia, yeah. people from Ireland, people from Wales, Scotland, England. So a lot of people from Liverpool, that's a massive trading port. Bristol, another big trading port. But then they go all off all around the world so the type of songs would be influenced from hearing bits and bats from everybody and all over the place and utilized as as shanties you know if you get a particularly bad ship that's uh that leaks a lot then one of the jobs you'd have to do would be pumping and that was not not done by uh not before steam it was just a back-breaking job and there were two types of pumps one would be like a seesaw and one would have a rope round it and handles it up a person on each on, on each side of this wheel with with the big handles on and then you'd have another group of people pulling but you could go on for a full watch could pump in and in some ships and apparently sailors used to smell the ship out if it's if it smelt sweet smell then they didn't bother going on it if they could help it obviously if you've been shanghai you wouldn't <laughs> too much choice but but if you did have a choice you'd smell it out if it smelled horrible and musty and dank then you'd know that it would it was quite a dry ship because they want a change of water going through it all the time and so you go on to the smellier of the two because uh, you know there'd be less pumping nice oh so a, a smelly ship means less pumping <laughs> yeah just so you get used to the smell it's better than uh, better than the back breaking work of pumping all the time that's for sure yeah, right Oh, Dan, we're you know we're hearing everybody now, uh, TikTok all over. We're hearing Wellerman. Uh, what kind of connection does a band have to that song? We started singing Wellerman in about 2014, I think. We'd been to a festival in Swanage in Dorset, and whenever we went to this festival, oh, oh, somebody who stuck in our minds a, a, a fan, usually a really good singer, and there were lots of late night sessions in a great pub there. The landlady used to have a chef coming on at 12 o'clock at night to do chips, hot sandwiches and things for the, the boozy folkies, basically, <laughs> quite late at night. But we had some fantastic sessions there. And um, this particular year, there was a guy from New Zealand there singing Wellerman. And Gaz out of the band said, oh, God, that's a great song. I'm going to have to see if I can find, the, find that out, you know. So he, he sort of researched it and found it. And, and we recorded it. 
There was a ship that put to sea, and the name of the ship was the Billy at Tea. A wind blew up about up down or below, my bully boys blow. Send may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tugging is done, we'll take our leave and go. She had not our last, our latest album, it might be our last one, our latest <laughs> album, and we recorded it for that, but we'd actually recorded it about three years before the album was released, because during the time we, we were recording the album, Joe Stead died, and we'd already started recording it with him, and so we had a, we had a big gap in between, otherwise it would have, you know, it would have been out in about four years ago, I think, three or four years ago. Hands to the side, harpoon and photo when she dived down below. Send may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. No line was cut. No one... We've actually sung it with a brass band yeah. um, at a folk festival, so we've been doing it quite, quite a long time. It's great. This, this song has made its way via a festival from a song about a New Zealand whaling company around the world to the ears of a shanty band yeah. who ended up playing it with a brass band yeah. in the north yeah. of England. I think yeah. that's a great story. And now it's being sung by a Scottish postman yeah. who's, uh, who's got a recording contract. Nice. <laughs> and and a million teenagers on TikTok duetting with each other as well. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, can I just pick up on something that seems to be part of the TikTok craze is people duetting and harmonising with each other. And everybody yeah. seems to sort of hear a set of harmonies. Let's take Wellerman as, as, as an example. People seem to sort of have an idea of what they think yeah. the harmonies could or should be. Do the original writers of the songs ever write the harmonies down, or is it down to the individual shanty no. band to find the harmonies that will work for them? No. I mean, there are theories that, that shanties work some with harmonies, but oh, right. when you've got a voice like mine, <laughs> you've got no then chance. if somebody's singing the tune too high for me to sing, then I have to sing. I have to sing it an octave lower, or, or sing a harmony, and I tend to sing a harmony. So I think that's. I'm, I'm sure people would have sung harmonies back when when chanties were first sung. They were only ever sung as work songs. They were not sung for entertainment. But if you've got, as you say, people with different voices, maybe Polynesians and Welsh and Cornishmen and folks, there's there's, there's plenty of cultures out there that like singing in harmony instinctively. Anyway, aren't there? Of course, yeah, yes. Yeah, it's, it's it's always going to be like that, isn't it? So there's a moment in the movie Master and Commander, which our, our listeners are, you know, love so much, where one of the characters starts singing the opening verse of Spanish Ladies, but in a very gentle, yeah. lyrical way. Yeah. And, and that seems to show that he's really out of touch with the crew. Can you tell us, John, yeah. a little bit about, you know, what, what kind of song is Spanish Ladies? When I was at school, we used to, junior school, we used to sing it. It's, a, it's a, a robust song, I would say. I would say it's not something. It's not a gentle song. I mean, you know, you, you were uh, you'd be really sad that you were leaving it, but it wouldn't be a, a soft song. It'd be sung with gusto. I'm pretty sure. Oh, it's quite raucous, isn't it? But still not a shanty, or is it a shanty? It's not real. I wouldn't say it was a shanty. No, no, it's right. it's. Um, it could be used as one though. You could be used, you could use it as a as a halyard shanty or a pumping shanty. 
is there is, there is some rhythm to it. And- John, I think in an earlier conversation you'd mentioned the word forbitter, but I'm probably saying that yeah. wrong. Forbitter is a song that was sung at leisure when the sailors had some some downtime. They would sit at the at the front of the ship on the forbits, which is what the ropes were wrapped around, and the like oh. the like bollards. And they'd be sat on there, and they'd be singing. They might somebody might have a squeeze box, somebody might have a fiddle, and they would sing songs for for their own entertainment. And also, a lot of the shanties were ways of telling the news as well, getting the news around the world. Well, it, it's it's clearly been very successful in the <laughs> in late twenty twenty, early twenty twenty one. It's got around the world pretty quickly. <laughs> right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> So if the message of shanty singing is still travelling around the world this summer as we all start to get out of our COVID restrictions, um, what kind of things might the Kimbers men be getting up to? Presumably a normal summer for, for Kimbers men would be festivals and stuff, would it? You would normally be doing festival gigs? Well, we're supposed to be going to Ostend at Springbank Holiday, but I think that's more and more unlikely. We've got Friday is still on at the moment as we speak, but that's in second weekend in July. And then mm. we're supposed to be going to Bremen in August. We've got Harwich. Harwich is in October, and I have a feeling that may well be the, our first festival, actually. It's a Harwich, Harwich Shanty Festival, and it's it's celebrating the Mayflower because one of the places that the Mayflower picked up was in Harwich. Really? Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. So one of the things I was going to ask you is what, what keeps you, as, as somebody with a background singing lots of folk, what keeps you in shanties? It sounds like it's the company as much as anything else. Yeah, the company keeps me in. Um, I, I, I'm in an, another two groups, actually. I was in a group in, well, I, I left in 1977, but we reformed about four years ago. We're all still alive, which is quite good. Well done. And, uh, <laughs> and we've, we've, been, we've been going <laughs> we've been out going out doing doing folk clubs and things, which has been lovely, and, and we, we get on really well. And I'm also singing with my son and my daughter in a group called the Bromleys. Oh, fantastic. And we do a cappella, three-part harmony. The problem is we've all got low voices. <laughs> my son's got a voice like mine, and my daughter's got the <laughs> female equivalent, if you like. But all sort of quite, we're all a bit loud. If people want to either listen to you online or download a CD, where should they go? Well, look at Kimber's Men on Bandcamp, or if you go to our webpage, kimbersmen.com, and then there's a link to our albums. Well, John, in, in this whole canon of books that we read, music plays such an important part. And it, recently we were reading a scene where Captain uh, Aubrey, you know, our, our friend Jack is, he's a captain. He's kind of alone now and he's down in his cabin, but he's listening to the men playing and singing up on the deck one evening. And he starts to just dance a little bit himself right. in his cabin. And I think that's the joy that, as we're all alone in this pandemic, we get to hear Kimber's men and dance alone in our cabins a little bit. So <laughs> yeah. thanks so much yeah. for being on and sharing your history of shanties. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So really, really great to have that chat with John. You can find more about Kimber's men online. Um, we really recommend following up their music. They've been a shanty band for ages and they've got a really, really great authentic sound. And John was a great guest. So now that we've covered off the singing angle, Mike, let's, just let's yeah. wrap things up with a little thought about Hyrebedian. He's a new character in this chapter, but we're already seeing some interesting things about his 
his role aboard ship. Yeah, it really is fascinating. And we've got so many people here, you know, kind of wheels within wheels again, going with all the intelligence and who's doing what, who's behind what, who's allied with whom. You know, I'm thinking back with Harabedian and I'm thinking back to the Maltese Clark that we had that clearly was, you know, in the midst of this, was a translator, was, you know, funneling intelligence off uh, back in the Ionian mission. And, and that's kind of come back, brought forward here with the Maltese intelligence agent on Malta. Yeah. But then again, we've got Harabedian as perhaps, you know, a, an innocent, like the young midshipman in the thing we had there. And you had mentioned, Ian, that he might be kind of that local solace version of Yagiello, mm. which who we had mentioned, you know, kind of alluded to in this letter from Diana. So is he an innocent? Is he perhaps a spy? Is this, you know, what, boy, O'Brien is just weaving these threads together so beautifully here. And, you know, we've got another one of these long chapters where in in some ways there's not much happening on this long sea cruise uh, after, after we had kind of really set up the action in a stunning way in the last chapter. But there is a lot going on here, and and, and you know, only a master like O'Brien can keep us just rolling right along here. Yeah, it's it's great, isn't it? It's been a, it's a surprisingly rich chapter, actually, with some new characters and a whole new impetus to the story. So, what's going to happen with this Dragoman, the expert? Graham has been shipped off early. What about this secret mission that they're all set out on, which apparently needs luck and surprise to succeed? What role is Reverend Martin? going to play in all of this and what's going to happen with coral reefs and let's not forget dr halley's diving bell is aboard the dromedary i can't wait to find out so what do you say in to a little bit more patrick o'brien next week with all my heart When I'm done with mortification of the flesh, I'll be right back. (laughs) I'll join you.